and welcome to the newest edition of the Next Educational Podcast. My name is Christina Fuß and I'm a Next Committee member and intensivist from Munich, Germany. Today I have the pleasure to talk with Janja Tachukovic about the important topic of nutrition in the ICU. Janja is an intensivist from Rijeka, Croatia, and just recently joined the Nutrition Pathway from the ESICM in Leuven, Netherlands. Welcome, dear Janja, and thank you for doing this podcast with me. Would you like oh. to tell us something about you and the Nutrition Pathway? Hello, Christina. Thank you for this warm welcome and invitation to do this podcast. Uh, I'm Janja. I am an ESICM member, medical doctor and postdoctoral researcher, currently working as anesthesiology and intensive care specialist in Clinical Hospital Center Rijeka in Croatia. I was one of the ESICM Nutrition Fellows, a training program that consisted of three parts that took place over the last few months. The first one was the introductory webinar, which was followed by a two-day quite interactive online course led by top experts in the field. Uh, the course gave us a really nice overview um, of the theory regarding nutrition in critically ill, as well as insight into relevant clinical questions that should be addressed with clinical research. The last part of the pathway was the fellowship held at three different hospitals, University Hospital Leuven in Belgium, University Hospital Charité in Berlin, and University Hospital Karolinska in Sweden. Personally, uh, I choose Leuven, where we received a really nice combination of clinical rounds with special emphasis on nutrition prescription in different real-life scenarios and patients, together with lectures, discussions, and interaction with top experts like Professor Kazar, and Professor Gunst, who really selflessly shared the knowledge and experience in a very positive environment. Also, we got to see their quite impressive clinical research team and lab addressing some of the major questions regarding nutrition in critically ill patients at the moment. Great, thank you so much for this introduction. And uh, I have to apologize uh, to say that Levin is in the Netherlands, it's in Belgium, of course. Uh, but anyway, let's start with a First question. So most of us uh, understand that uh, nutrition is an important part of care we provide to our ICU patients. And critical illness can be a highly uh, catabolic state, which highlights, uh, highlights the importance of adequate nutrition support and its role in patients' outcome and recovery. So to start, what would you point out as key issues regarding nutrition in critically ill? As you already said, nutrition represents an important aspect of care we provide for our critically ill patients. Why is that? Critical illness induces inability to eat. And one very obvious reason why we want to do that for our patients is to avoid severe muscle wasting and weakness, which correlates both with mortality and long-term burden. Stress response associated with critical illness is one of the known driver of this catabolism. Uh, can you explain why? Well, um, inflammation, insulin resistance, and elevated counter-regulatory hormones all lead toward production of glucose, which is then used in non-insulin-dependent tissues for energy production. However, uh, this glucose comes from limited glycogenolysis and gluconeogenesis, for which the substrates are provided via lipolysis and muscle proteolysis. By feeding the patient, we hope to block this loop of proteolysis leading to muscle wasting and thus promote patients' anabolism and recovery. So you uh, addressed uh, several issues of the pathophysiology. So 
what would you say are the key points that need to be considered in treating the patient? This is an important question. Um, so I would list that medical nutrition therapy should be actively considered and initiated at some point for all patients staying in the ICU who are not able to eat by themselves. In order to do so, nutritional protocol should exist and should be guided by currently available data and first do no harm principle. Also, it definitely requires regular assessment and close monitoring to prevent and detect possible harm. Fortunately, the last decade made quite the progress and taught us that early full enteral nutrition is probably not better than some enteral nutrition. Supplementary polyenteral nutrition is not indicated in the first week of critical illness and glutamine and arginine do not provide benefit and might even be harmful. And having said that, adequate nutritional support can be somewhat complex and still has a lot of open questions regarding optimal timing, number of calories and type of nutrients. Yeah, that's very important. And I think it also depends highly on the type of patient that we are treating, even um, if you say that it's not indicated in the first week of critical illness. So I think there are probably several phases in the treatment of the patient. So what do you think are the essential parts of an evidence-based nutrition protocol uh, in 2022? Uh, well, to, to present it in a more structured way, I, I will divide this answer to three distinct phases regarding time in the context of nutrition prescriptions. Uh, the first phase involves admission and initial assessment of the patient, so the first 12 to 48 hours. This phase should be aimed at stabilizing the patient while addressing the cause of critical illness. In terms of nutrition, during that period, general nutritional risk assessment should be performed. We also want to start with micronutrients, which include parenteral vitamins and trace elements in all patients that are not expected to feed adequately by mouth. And during these first 40, 48 hours, glucose and potassium should be checked at least every four hours and other electrolytes like sodium chloride, magnesium and phosphates minimally once daily. Uh, of course, if they are altered, they should be corrected. The second phase should start once the initial stabilization of the patient is achieved, ideally within the first 48 hours. This phase involves careful and slow initiation of enteral nutrition if no clear reason to withhold it exists. That means that the patient has reached a stable state. In example, lactates are decreasing, the shock is controlled with fluids and stable dose of vasopressors, there is no urgent surgery expected and, and no anatomic contraindication present, such as bowel obstruction or perforation, mesenteric ischemia, acute abdomen or abdominal compartment syndrome. I think there was a great um, summary of these first two phases. And I think it's important to mention for all our listeners that it highly depends if the patient is admitted in shock or not. So if there is probably a neurocritical care patient who is not in shock, these first two phases um, can be missing and you can start with um, enteral nutrition right away. So what type of uh, enteral nutrition would you recommend? Well, some of the commercially available enteral nutrition preparation likely suffice at this point. Uh, initial dose can be started at 20 to 30 milliliters per hour and given continuously. 
And during that time, GI function should be monitored uh, and checked for signs of feeding intolerance in form of nausea, abdominal pain, distension, regurgitation of gastric contents or diarrhea. If the patient doesn't have gastric feeding intolerance, then the rate can be gradually increased by 10 to 20 mils per hour every 6 to 12 hours. Great. So we should check for signs of feeding intolerance. I think this is probably easy for uh, most of our listeners. But I think that the, the most difficult question is the nutritional energy target. So can you explain how much of nutrition we would like to provide for our patient? Yeah, at the moment, uh, the energy target is set at resting energy expenditure if measured by indirect calorimetry. Or this, if this is not available, then acceptable calculated total energy target of 20 to 25 kilocalories per kilo of adjusted body weight per day. Uh, in case the patient has feeding intolerance and enteral nutrition remains below the chosen target, strategies to improve uh, administration include application of prokinetics such as erythromycin and metoclopramide uh, while being aware of their QT prolongation effect. However, if gastroparesis persists despite the administration of prokinetic agents or if they are contraindicated, uh, and it has been proven that uh, this gastroparesis is not secondary to small bowel dysmotility, then post-pyloric feeding is another option. Alternatively, hypocaloric nutrition can simply be tolerating, tolerated during the first week of critical illness. Okay, great. Thank you. But we now we talk um, about not meeting uh, the, the nutritional energy target, but often staff is also afraid of overfeeding. So, what can we do to avoid that? To avoid overfeeding, ESPN guidelines recommend not to use early full enteral or parenteral nutrition, but to prescribe it within three to seven days. If parenteral nutrition is needed to supplement the insufficient enteral nutrition. From a panic trial, we know it is safe to wait until day seven. If such uh, enteral nutrition failure exists at day seven, it may be a good idea to rule out covert intestinal complication as a cause of this. Um, if parenteral nutrition is needed, then standard solution can be used and application of modified lipids or high protein doses is not currently supported by evidence. Also, mind that parenteral nutrition does not contain micronutrients, so they should be prescribed separately. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, we interrupted you when you said that there are three phases. So what is the third phase after the initial stabilization? Okay, the third and last phase incorporates daily reevaluation of medical nutrition therapy. And if possible, de-escalation of nutrition from enteral to oral or from parenteral to enteral nutrition. And once the enteral nutrition reaches target or is above uh, 1,500 milliliters, micronutrients may be emitted. And when inflammation decreases, organ function starts to recover and the patient increases physical activity, uh, then reevaluation and adjustment of energy target is also needed. So if possible, indirect calorimetry can be of help uh, at that particular point in time. Great. Thank, thank you for the summary. So if um, I can sum it up, we have these three phases, the initial phase of shock, and then uh, the second phase of stabilization, and then the third, which uh, leads uh, over to 
the recovery. And depending on your patient, uh, you could enter this nutritional pathway also in the second or the third phase and um, then have to reevaluate re your um, medical nutrition therapy daily and, um, and um, think about the physical activity of the patient and the organ functions as well. So, as you mentioned, we don't want to harm um, attributed to medical nutrition therapy. So what kind of risks are we talking about and what kind of monitoring might help with decision making in the individual patient? Well, the most debated risks uh, include potentially little refeeding syndrome and non-occlusive bowel ischemia. Uh, refeeding syndrome may cause potentially fatal shifts in fluids and electrolytes upon commencement of any type of nutrition. Regular daily monitoring for serum electrolytes, phosphate, and lactate is mandatory to detect and manage it. In case of refeeding hypophosphatemia, defined as phosphates below 0.65 or a decrease of about 0.16 millimoles per liter, then electrolytes should be measured more frequently, two to three times a day, and supplemented, of course, if needed. On top of that, energy supply should be restricted for 48 hours and then carefully and gradually increased. On the other hand, uh, non-occlusive bowel ischemia might be provoked upon initiation of enteral nutrition in patients with compromised blood flow to the bowel due to circulatory shock or intestinal vascular disease. Uh, the Nutriria 2 trial showed that this complication happens more often with full enteral nutrition than early full parenteral nutrition. Uh, and post hoc analysis showed independent association with enteral nutrition, the butamine use, subscores of about 62, and hemoglobin levels below 109 grams per liter. Uh, if bowel ischemia is suspected, it can be detected by plain abdominal x ray, abdominal ultrasound, or a CT scan. And treatment consists of feeding interruption, gastric drainage, and optimization of systemic circulation. Uh, lastly, regurgitation of gastric contents and aspiration risks should also be mentioned. This is usually monitored via measurement of gastric residual volume after an interruption in feeding. However, there is no evidence that this procedure reduces aspiration rate, and gastric residual volumes up to 500 milliliters can be safely tolerated. Yeah, I think this is uh, one important point that you mentioned, as there is a lot of uh, discussion about the gastric residual volume. Maybe you could you just quickly quickly tell us how you do it in your hospital. So, what kind of um, what kind of nutrition do you follow, and how do you handle the gastric residual volume in your ward? Well, I think we do it a little bit uh, not regularly. Uh, we are feeding the patient during the 16 hours and we make an interrupt interruption from midnight to 6 a.m. And afterwards, we measure what has passively uh, went out uh, as a gastric residual volume. We tolerate up to 800 milliliters, which is somewhat unconventional. But if we do have this kind of volumes, then we reduce uh, the rate of uh, enteral nutrition at that point. Uh, for about a half, so to 50% of the initial uh, dose that was prescribed. Okay, so so from my experience, I can tell you that there's always a lot of discussion when we have uh, these volumes. Would you say, would 
it was difficult in your ward um, to to um, discuss the gastric residual volume or is yeah. everybody uh, yeah <laughs> Yeah, especially with nurses. So yeah. it's always okay. It's above five hundred milliliters. What should we do? We should we stop the feeding? And we all we we want to um, say to the nurses, okay, it can be safely tolerated. No worries there. There is no concern for the safety of the patient. We can continue. We just have to reduce it, and we usually add up prokinetics. Yeah, I totally agree with you that this is um, this is always a topic to be discussed. And so I just want to emphasize um, again that it can be safely tolerated and then that you can continue with the uh, enteral nutrition anyway. So, but are there any other risks worth mentioning? Uh, well, I think they're the ones associated with both over and underfeeding the patient, both of which have been associated with adverse outcomes. Uh, this is in part because the termination of optimum energy target has several practical problems. The first one is technical, as indirect calorimetry is not available in all ICUs, requires time and competence, and different devices might provide different measurements. Most of all, it is not clear whether feeding up to the resting energy expenditure in ICU improves or worsens outcome. And this leads us to the next problem, which is that we really don't know the optimal timing for reaching currently recommended energy targets. More evidence is emerging suggesting that giving too much too early might be harmful by interfering with metabolic pathways like autophagy, an important process for preservation of cellular integrity. And this is regardless of the route of application of nutrition. So some of the tests that might help detect overfeeding include urea, creatinine, liver function tests, and blood glucose levels. Thank you. So what would you say, what do you see as potential pitfalls or open questions that need to be addressed? Well, one of the pitfalls that is easy to oversee if the dietitian is not part of the team includes accounting for the hidden calories. The most prominent one includes propofol, which contains one kilocalorie per milliliter, but other less prominent include dextrose and acetate containing solutions, replacement solution during renal replacement therapy, etc. Um, then some medication may require a break in enteral nutrition when the same route is used for the application of medica medication. And this is the case for phenytoin, ciprofloxacin, and penicillin. So you say it's important um, if a dietitian is part of the team or not. So do you have a dietitian in your ward? Unfortunately not. We, we don't have a dietitian in our team at the moment. Yeah, yeah the same for our ICU. We don't have, so we, we have to um, check on these potential pitfalls ourselves. So it's, I think, quite important to mention as most of the ICUs probably don't have a dietitian in their team. So... What would you say looking ahead in the future, what areas of nutrition research and critically ill would you think hold promise to, to change our practice in the next few years? Well, as already said, recent data challenge the appropriateness of providing standard amounts of calories and proteins during acute critical illness. Uh, one of the ongoing RCTs is Nutriria 3, which should inform us whether early calorie protein restriction provides benefit over standard calorie protein targets. 
it will compare two populations, one receiving uh, six kilocalories per kilo per day uh, and uh, regarding protein 0 0.2 to 0 0.4 grams per kilo per day to another that will receive 25 kilocalories per kilo per day and one gram uh, per kilo per day of proteins uh, during the first seven days. The, the other uh, one is the effort trial, which should help us uh, regarding the optimal protein dose in patients with higher nutrition risk. In this RCT, application of higher with 2.2 um, or higher grams per kilo per day of protein to 1.2 grams per kilo per day of protein uh, will be compared irrespective of the route of administration. Oh yeah, it's great that you mentioned these two RCTs because in my opinion, the protein dose is one of the most important aspects that will be discussed. So I think we can we can looking uh, we can look forward to the next guidelines to see if the protein dose is increased or not. Yeah, I agree. So <laughs> thank you um, for these um, two uh, two RCTs that you mentioned. So. What would you say to to sum it up? Some some closing statement from you. Well, I think adequate nutritional support can be somewhat complex, and still has a lot of open questions regarding optimal timing, number of calories, and type of nutrients. Fortunately, Nutrition Pathway uh, has some high quality indication in the field of nutrition in critically ill patients regarding what is known and what should be answered, and also. Uh, we do have ongoing research and trials that should help us with these questions. Personally, I am looking forward to seeing the results of both of dimension trials as they are aiming to answer two big current questions. And I think they will change our practice in the next few years. Yeah, yeah, this is, uh, this is totally right. And um, I hope that for our listeners, we were able to break down this complex topic and uh, put it into some digestible pieces and that uh, every one of our listeners found something that might be interesting for their ICU and their treatment in their country. And um, I thank you so much for doing this podcast with me. And um, I hope to see you soon, maybe with some nutrition projects together across Europe. So thank you, Yanya. Thank you for inviting me.